Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. Her life had been completely turned upside down, and this was basically her shot at, at redemption for her future. Please rise. Court is now in session. All right. Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast with Steve Lowry and Yvonne Godfrey. Yvonne, straight off the operating room uh, table, straight <laughs> into the podcasting booth. How are you doing today? I'm doing good. As I as I was telling you and our guests right before we started recording, it was not the fun kind of surgery. No, nope. right. no fun drugs, which I'm just just kidding about the drugs for legal reasons. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but um, I'm, I'm doing fine. I'm glad to be back in the podcast swing of things. And just that, you know, just that my medical issues didn't take time away from the podcast. <laughs> that's, that's right. What I'm really, <laughs> right. <laughs> that's what I'm really relieved about. I mean, you had the morning off I and mean, what else do you want? <laughs> off, off. <laughs> yeah. That's what I got to do right. to get a day off around yeah, here. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even need surgery. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, uh, well, uh, that's enough about your medical issues. Let's introduce our, uh, fantastic guest today. So we have Sarah Stimke Keim, who is the managing attorney uh, at Christensen Law up in Southfield, Michigan. You can look her up at David Christensen, that's C-H-R-I-S-T-E-N-S-E-N law.com. Sarah, how are you doing today? I'm great. How are you guys? Very good. Very good. Doing good. And and I just, I want to make one point of clarification, Steve. It's there's never too much info about my medical issues yeah, on the I know. show. I know. It's not <laughs> so. the first time we've talked about your medical issues. <laughs> no, that's what I'm just, I want to make sure when you say that's enough, it's it's never enough. <laughs> right. Exactly. Okay. That's like right. a day off, like when, when people refer to maternity leave as vacation. Right. <laughs> right, right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. You're like, mm, don't feel rested. <laughs> yeah. That's a, that's always something good to say as a, as a, yeah. uh, a managing attorney. I'm sure mm-hmm. you know, Sarah. <laughs> So one of my colleagues just mentioned it to me the other day and referred to it as, you know, when you were on vacation after you had Wilhelmina, and I'm like, right. <laughs> yeah. you want to go back in your office and rethink that? <laughs> right, right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Take a minute. Start over. <laughs> Oh, well, very good. Well, Sarah, let me tell everybody a little bit about you. Uh, as I said already, you are the managing attorney at Christensen Law in Southfield, Michigan, a graduate of Alma College, and then uh, went to Michigan State University Law School uh, and uh, participated or graduated from the Trial Practice Institute, where I understand you were in uh, multiple mock trial moot court competitions, got to the finals in several national competitions uh, in that. Um, um, and uh, since you uh, have graduated, have been involved in just a number of uh, uh, huge cases, uh, including the one that we're talking about here today, which was the second largest uh, verdict in Michigan for 2014. Uh, you're on the, Mich- the uh, Michigan Association of Justice Executive uh, Board. Um, but I found interesting. I saw that you um, you grew up on a Christmas tree farm, raised pigs, um, played hockey and soccer. And then uh, and still are active in soccer. It sounds like you play all year round, both indoor and outdoor leagues. Is that right? I do. I I can't let it go. Got to hold on to those glory days. Yeah. Approaching my 40s. No, I. Yep. Just like Taylor Swift. I grew up on a Christmas tree farm (laughs) and um, my dad always brought trees down to Metro Detroit when we were growing up and he still does. So now 
I live close to the lot and we can help out on the weekends. And whereas I absolutely hated it while I was growing up, now I actually find it kind of charming and my kids love it. We go and spend way too much time there in the winter. And then, yeah, I play soccer year round. I, I kind of dropped off the co-ed scene. Um, shortly after I had my first kid, I was like, you know what? I don't need to be playing with a bunch of dudes that are trying to <laughs> live out their glory days. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yeah. Like, I don't need to go up for a 50, 50 header against some guy. So right. <laughs> um, mostly I stick to women's leagues now, but it's a lot of fun. I've been playing with some of the same women now for, I would say, I don't know, five, six years, the same exact team. So it's, it's just a lot of fun. And I really hate running. Like with no purpose, unless I'm chasing something. No running in soccer, right? I mean, so if I'm playing soccer or basketball is the other sport that I like to still play, then I don't hate running so much. But you will not find me like grabbing my phone and going out for a ten mile run. That's that's not my type of workout. That's that's Steve. That's Steve all the way. (laughs) That is. I do. I do like to go out for my runs. Uh, I'm not fast, but I I will make it. Um, (laughs) But I I was I was just going to, you know, uh, so us soccer experts, Sarah, we have to stick together. I I was a uh, I coached my daughter's soccer team from the time when she was five to about 11 years old. So I consider myself. an expert. I I did become an expert on what what offsides was. I I didn't know before that. Now I now I really I understand the rule well, I think. Yeah. I mean, you don't really need to know anything else if you know what offsides is. (laughs) You got it all figured out. (laughs) I usually play center mid because I am just as much of a control freak on the soccer field as I am in life. So I like to have my hands in every aspect, offense, defense, and be the one distributing as I kind of do in the office as well. That's sort of my role here. Yeah. And, and of course, playing center mid means you don't run at all in soccer. I mean, you <laughs> might go both ways. So, <laughs> But I'm telling you, if you're chasing a ball, it doesn't count as running. You That's, don't right. That's, right. <laughs> That's right. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Uh, I should, uh, I should also mention Sarah, that you are involved in, in multiple charitable um, projects, including the brain recovery project, uh, Detroit horsepower and impact 100. And I thought it was also pretty cool uh, is that you have started a business accelerator network for female attorneys and paralegals. So uh, that sounds really cool. Yeah. Yeah. We are. Um, we're just getting that off the ground. You know, there are quite a few networking groups for lawyers and, and females, but this one, we wanted to be a little bit more intimate and we wanted to focus on on a few different things, philanthropic, but also business growth. And part of that business growth model is something we've been trying to implement here, which is growing your business by beginning with changing your culture within. And I think that's something that a lot of law firms are really slow to do, even though around us, workplaces are changing. And the way that your workforce views being in the workplace is changing as well. And we have to keep up with that or else, I mean, turnover is going to just, I think just skyrocket in a lot of law firms have been doing the same thing for 40 years, 50 years, and assume that they will continue being successful at it. But I think as employees start realizing that there are other places that value the way that employees work and employee happiness 
and engagement and you know and that encourages buy-in from your from your employees i think that things are really going to change and and part of the focus of the networking group is to change workplaces for women but also to elevate women who are in positions of leadership yeah well it's it's such a great uh, a, a great thing to do i mean especially with uh, trial practice which is you know for so long been such a uh, male dominated uh, industry that we definitely uh, need to get uh, much closer to, um, uh, equality. Um, cause we're, we're not near that yet. So. Sure. I mean, as you know, uh, trial practice, litigation, personal injury are still so male dominated and so many of the firms are, you know, have existed for decades with white men at the helm. And I think that where you're seeing a shift to women in leadership, I think you're seeing a positive impact on the business, both from the outside perspective in marketing and also on the inside with how you're treating your staff and your coworkers. And I mean, really, I worked at a place where it just wasn't a nice place to work. No one cared if employees were happy. There was just so much, um, cattiness and little clicks and this and that. And, and no one asked the employees what they wanted or what they cared about. And, and not all employees care about the same thing. And then we came here and we thought, oh, well, we just want a nice place to work. We want people to be happy. And when we were small and we kind of wanted the same things, that was easy. But as you grow, you realize that what makes one person happy and motivates them is not the same thing that motivates and makes another person happy. And so you really have a, a juggling act going on and it's, it's a work in progress, but yeah. we are committed to working at it. So, you know, that's our number one goal here. Yeah. Well, um, well, let's talk about this case. This is a, a, a really good case to talk about. The name of the case is Valma Dorado versus McCoy Concrete Co. Uh, Leonard Wells. Uh, there was also Rockaway LLC and Brownstone Primo Concrete. Uh, it sounded like the main defendants were McCoy Concrete Co. and, and Leonard Wells, uh, but it involved a, in, in this case was tried in June of 2014, uh, it involved a collision between a cement truck and a uh, Volkswagen Jetta that happened at 9.35 a.m. on September 17, 2010. Uh, Valma, who is 36 years old, uh, she was an employee at, I think, Guardian Alarm, and she was driving on Telegraph Road uh, and getting ready to make a turn and basically this concrete truck uh, going approximately 50 miles per hour. Uh, and I think there was evidence that the um, that the driver was uh, distracted looking at paperwork or something like that, wasn't watching where he's going. And he just ran straight into the back of uh, Valma's uh, uh, Jetta and uh, pushed her into a utility pole and, um, and caused serious injuries. Uh, she had a number of, uh, it, although this was a big part of the disputed trial, but she had a, a traumatic brain injury, uh, severe traumatic headaches, uh, spinal fusion and neck surgery, shoulder surgery, tremors in her hand, a two more spinal fusions at L4, L5, and then at L5, S1, and then a hip fusion at the, uh, her, her sacroiliac uh, was fused as well. Um, so just multiple, multiple injuries. And, uh, and this was an admitted liability uh, case, which 
Um, we've talked about this a few times on the on the podcast, and I always like to remind our listeners that um, admitted liability cases, uh, I guess, from first blush might sound like they're easier, but it's a tactic by the defense in order to put the heat on the, the plaintiff to make it all about the plaintiff's injuries and how they're just being greedy, trying to get too much money uh, for what they, they um, you know, for the harms they've suffered. Um but uh, but that didn't um, that didn't work in this case. This was a uh, just a fantastic verdict. Uh, total of seventeen million eight hundred thousand uh, dollars for Valma. Uh, that was in June of twenty fourteen. This was tried in Wayne County, Michigan. Wayne County. That is um, that, that is that Detroit. It is. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So uh, tried in Wayne County, Michigan, uh, June of 2014. And as I said earlier in the show, this was the second largest verdict in Michigan for 2014. So um, so just uh, really fantastic work. Um, and, I, and Sarah, I know you and your uh, and your law partner uh, tried this together. Um, talk a little bit about how you just um, when, when there is an admitted liability case, you know, how you address that in the and some of the problems that uh, you know, come up in, in trying cases like that? Yeah. So like you said, in admitted liability cases, the defendant's always going to try and make it seem like, well, we've, we've said, we're sorry. What more, what more can we do? You know, the plaintiff now just wants to come and ask you for money. We, it was just an accident. Um, and we admitted that we shouldn't have done that. So really what more is there? And here we had some nice facts because we had sent um, requests for admissions early on that they denied. They had also denied the counts of our complaint that alleged negligence. Um, and actually we had to refile the case just as a procedural matter. And so we had a, even a more recent complaint and answer that was just a few months before trial where they again, probably pro forma, but again, denied all the negligence counts and that was just a few months before trial. And this case had been being litigated for years. So they couldn't quite get away with the we apologized and, you know, now what more does she want type of attitude because we had discovery responses where they denied negligence. We have their answer where they denied negligence and they only stipped to admit negligence just right before trial. So it really... I think backfired because it really came across as pretty disingenuous. Right. I, one of the things that I, I liked that you, uh, I mean, there's a number of great themes that you all put into this case, but one of the things I, I really liked that you did is you had evidence that the concrete company had called this a very serious accident in their own paperwork and then got their truck repaired and back on the road, I think within two weeks. So when it came to themselves, they were very quick to act and to make sure that they were, you know, made whole, uh, but then didn't want to do that for your client. Yeah. And I, I don't know if you guys have worked with Eric Oliver in the past, but um, we worked with Eric on this case. He is a fantastic trial consultant. And that was one of the themes that he identified for us early on was they they got themselves, they made themselves whole within weeks. Their truck was back on the road. Their driver was back to work. They missed no time. In Michigan, we have to be careful of how we talk about profits and, and things like that because we don't have punitives. Okay. Um, but we can say, we could at least say that, that they made themselves whole and got back to work. And Velma, at the time of trial, 
was still working to make herself whole and they had not accepted responsibility at, at that time. They never had. So I was wondering about that when I saw the facts of this case. So uh, Michigan, I'm sure we've talked about this before because we've had some other great Michigan lawyers on. Um, they don't have punitive damages in Michigan? No punitives in Michigan. Okay. Is that because of the auto industry? I mean, I, I, uh, yeah, I mean, I would thank our insurance lobby for that. Um, this has been a gap in our civil justice system for a really, really, really long time. Yeah. Well, and I think there was... A, there was a trade-off for some of our liability laws when they instituted the no-fault system, which has now been sort of dismantled again. But alas, we still have no punitives. Yeah, I, I did notice you do, but you do have joint and several liability. Yes. So that that's uh, one thing that, that Michigan has that uh, we don't have down in Georgia. Everything gets a portion. So. Um, but, uh, but yeah, that's, uh, that's important, but, um, we'll talk about this case. I mean, it, it, uh, I know how much work you put into it and, um, and I know that there were things that, at least at the beginning that maybe your, your, uh, focus groups had, um, cued you in on that you were viewing as potential weaknesses in the case and, uh, and how you, um, sought to address those. Yeah. So when we focus grouped the case, we wanted to flush out a few issues, um, one of which was how they viewed our client. That was probably first and foremost. Um, she was a, such a sweetheart, but she got when she got nervous, she she cried a lot, which, as we know, can sometimes be a turnoff if the jury has not yet accepted and embraced you and wanting to take care of you. Um, she had a, a shaky voice. She was very unsure of herself because she had and she had that tremor. So she would sometimes shake. And so as cynical as trial lawyers are, we wanted to get some feedback on how our potential jurors might view her I, her idiosyncrasies, oh my gosh, I can't even talk. <laughs> and so we wanted, so we, we recorded a video for them. We didn't prepare her before we did that. And I think there's some differing views on preparing your client for your focus group video or not. And, and we went with not. And so we kind of gave them some really raw footage of her. Um, she also... It is a lesbian. She has a partner, a long-term partner for a long time. Um, this was 2014. So we didn't know how that would play. We were in a fairly liberal jurisdiction with Wayne County, but still, still pretty unsure. And then of course, because she's an unmarried woman and with no kids, then you have the question of damages and because we have no punitives, what is your argument for large damages when you don't have dependents or um, something like that, that they can kind of hang their hat on to give money for? So we really wanted to test that. We also wanted to test um, the argument that the head injury symptoms took some time to arise and whether or not there would be a a strong enough causal link to the crash. Um, same with the orthopedic injuries. There was argument that that they didn't all, you know, they didn't all show up on the day of the crash. And some of them were sort of tangential, like, like you mentioned, the hip fusion that arose much, much later, but could be linked to the low back. 
Um, the shoulder was the, the first surgery as well as the easiest linked. They didn't really argue much about the surgery, the shoulder surgery, but that was also probably the most minor injury. And the, the defense expert, the defense expert on orthopedics basically argued that her orthopedic complaints were because she was fat. And so we, that was another reason we wanted to show our mock jury, her video, and then present them with the defense arguments. Um, so we got a lot of great feedback out of that focus group. We also wanted to show a video of her partner because we knew that her partner was going to be our strongest damages witness. She didn't have any family that was going to come to testify, which could have been another landmine, you know, leaving the jury wondering why isn't this woman close with her family? Where are her family? You know, why isn't her mom or dad or sister, or brother or cousin or anyone showing up here to testify? So we knew that we had to rely on heavy damages witnesses that were friends, um, former co-workers, but mostly it was going to be her partner who was by her side through all of this. So we did a same thing. We did a raw video of her partner. Um, what we wanted to test there was her personality style. She was uh, always tended to be the tougher one of the two. She, I think she tried to really protect Thalma, which we loved about her, but it sometimes made her come across as defensive and a little angry. And we know that juries don't always react positively to angry people, whether or not that anger is substantiated. Right. So that was something that we wanted to hear from our mock jury on. So Yvonne, the internet is getting more and more crowded, especially ever since the pandemic, and it's getting harder and harder to get noticed online. And you can have all the great verdicts in the world, but if nobody knows about them, then they're not gonna come and hire your law firm. So you need to find a company like Digital Law Marketing. That's right. It turns out that what you put on the internet is no good if people can't find it. And Steve, we've talked about this, but now that I finally know what SEO is, which is search engine optimization, it's really important that your firm's site is, is maximizing the hits that it's going to get. And something that digital law marketing is doing that's really cool right now is they're offering free SEO audits uh, for law firm campaigns. So that's something our listeners should take advantage of. Yeah, because it's hard to get around the internet and know how to make yourself visible without having somebody help you. And they are the experts in this. And not only will they help you design your website if you need to, they'll do your content marketing, they'll do your search engine optimization, as Yvonne just said, they'll do your pay-per-click marketing, social media marketing, and they also will offer full management on Google's new local service ads, which we just learned about and are trying to get into, but it's another way that you can put yourself out there and get people to know who you are. And digital law marketing is great at it. Exactly. And, you know, one of the things I think is cool is that you work with them and they really make you feel like they know your firm and they know you and that they help you with your web presence so that it feels individual. It doesn't feel cookie yeah. cutter. It feels like they know the people at your firm and they get what you're trying to accomplish. Yeah, it's not like they already have a website done and just give you one that's already been done. But they will spend time with you, get to know your personality, put your personality into the website. And you should go visit them at digitallawmarketing.com. That's digitallawmarketing.com. 
Tell them, tell them we sent you. How far before trial did you, did you focus group the case? And at that time, did you think that you were going to have to um, go into the issues on liability as well? At the time we focus grouped the case, I think it was about a year before trial. Um, we did not focus much on liability. I believe we presented liability as though they would have to decide it, meaning they would have to answer the question on their mock verdict form. But we didn't play the defense role as like we're here to defend on liability because we knew that it wasn't that it was likely going to be more of a side issue that was just kind of thrown out because they didn't have anything on liability. And so we didn't want to have a big focus on who's at fault. Of course, your jury, just like your mock jury, just like your real jury asks questions about liability, even when they're told liability is not an issue. Right. Um, but we still had them answer the question on the verdict form and gave them the facts of the accident exactly as it happened. And of course, they immediately want to see the police report right. from the police officer, <laughs> find out what Velma was doing that she should have been doing differently inside her car, even though she was literally sitting still facing forward. But they got past. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I... The, our listeners don't have the benefit of seeing the, the some of the pictures that you sent us and, and the still of the video. Um, and I, in looking over that stuff and kind of your summary of the, the issues that you addressed with the focus group and what some of the defenses were, the weight thing really, um, number one, kind of pissed me off because I feel like the same... I feel like the same thing does not happen as frequently with male plaintiffs as it does with female plaintiffs or female injured people. Um, but I also, in looking at the, the, the video of her or the still anyway, I, I don't, it's, it's just, just so our listeners know she was, she, she did not look to me to be a, a very large person. Um, and so I wasn't sure how much of that was, um, legitimate and how much of that was just kind of trying to paint her, um, as less likable or lazy or somebody who wasn't helping herself. Yeah. I, I think that that is true. I mean, because that's what happens, right? That's the reason why someone on a, on a defense points out someone's weight is because they're not only implying that there's stress on the joints, but they're also implying that right. they're lazy, that they're unmotivated and that their life is not worth as much. Um, but Velma, and I, I don't, because it pissed me off too. So I don't want to give credence to it as though yeah. in a, a plaintiff's presentation matters, but, but we know it does. And she happened to be, I mean, she presented wonderfully. She always was like dressed very nicely and she took great care in how she presented herself. And she is, she was clinically overweight by, by definition, but she is not someone that, that comes across when you see them, the first thing you think is they're morbidly obese or, or, or even obese. Um, and so that was a really poor miscalculation on their part, probably due in large part to the fact that their expert who gave these opinions had never met her. So she did a records review and reviewed the radio, the radiological studies because that was what she was. She was a radiologist. Mm -hmm. So she took 
this and, you know, said, here's all this adipose tissue. And this is, this is really wreaking havoc on her joints and stress on her back and her hips and all of this. And, and any time she could, this is kind of an aside, but in her testimony, anytime she could, she would say, and look at this thick layer of fat here next to, next to the spine or next to the, even in the shoulder. And it really, I think backfired and, and, and it did it with our focus group too. They didn't like it. And, and we didn't even have the advantage of playing the experts, um, duck transcript for them because it hadn't yet been taken, but even just reading the report and us, giving that argument, I, I think I played the defense at that, at, at that focus group. And I really, they, I, they did not like it at all. And which we were happy to, to see because it really offended us, but we wanted of course, to take the emotion out of it and know how it affected objective observers. Yeah. Right. Do you typically, um, you know, so you're focus grouping the case when you've got you've got some of the facts, but as you mentioned, there's some things that are still to be done at that point. Either some of the experts hadn't been de- deposed, or you didn't have their video or their transcripts back. Is there a general time frame in which you like to do your focus groups in advance of trial? Sometimes we'll do more than one. Just depends on on the trial. Um, in this case, I will say that there were like a, a bunch of smaller side issues, but there wasn't like one big glaring issue that we were thinking we need to test this and figure out how to get around it. And so because of that, I think we did it a little bit earlier than we may otherwise have done because we just wanted to see what is it about this case that we aren't seeing, number one. And number two, could the jury give us some ideas of how to maximize our damages because I felt like we were kind of lacking in that argument a little bit. And so those were the reasons that we focus grouped it earlier on than we might otherwise have done. Gotcha. Cause I feel like you did, you did have, um, you know, you had a lot of the hurdles with damages in terms of, you know, you're getting, you're not allowed to, you're not going to get into liability as much. So you've got that and we, we talked about the strategic reasons behind that. You've got um, all the issues that come with some of her injuries, including the brain injuries that I'm sure we'll talk more about that are especially, I think now there's a lot more awareness in the general public than there was then about things that are connected to traumatic brain injuries that the average person does not know. Um, and then you also had, I was, I was just wondering if, if this was something I saw as a products lawyer and whether this was something that came up at all, which was that looking at the pictures of the Jetta, it didn't look that bad. Um, that her vehicle didn't look that bad, um, which is not to say anything about her injuries. We all know how that works, but I was wondering if that played at all either into something that the focus group said or something that you felt you had to manage at trial. It's so funny you say that because we are always so paranoid about the pictures that we give to a jury. You know, even if you think that you have the best damage photos in the world, you're going to give them to someone and an engineer is going to sit there and be like, well, I don't really think that that part of the car was smashed enough for her to be hurt that badly inside. And so that is something that we wanted to get feedback from the mock jury on always, because here we had, we had two impacts. So the cement truck rear-ended her and then pushed her into a pole. So we had a double impact. 
And the rear end of the Jetta looked pretty bad. It had like yeah. dirt and whatnot gathered up into the trunk as it's being like accordioned into the, the telephone pole. But when you looked at it from the front, you couldn't see any of that. And and so, of course, that was the view that the defense was showing the whole time. <laughs> right. So, you know, it, it can be deceiving. And, you know, sometimes you play little tricks, like when you have a photo that has tested really well, you'll like prop that up so that the jury can see it through the whole trial, even when the defense is presenting <laughs> their proofs or whatever, <laughs> right, right. you know, but um Of course, we definitely wanted to get feedback on that. And also, that was one of the reasons why in one of the demonstratives you saw, we made it like the cartoon, the cartoon cement truck and the cartoon car, because it takes away some of the tendency to analyze the actual images and focuses on the fact that there were two direct impacts to this woman Mm -hmm. as she's sitting in a tiny little car that has is being careened into by a giant cement truck. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That demonstrative I thought was very effective, but it shows a 66,000 pound concrete truck and then a 2000 pound uh, Jetta. So of course, if he's going 50, 50 miles per hour uh, in the 66,000 pounds, I mean, that's a lot of force. And, and yes, the Jetta um, in the back, I thought looked pretty bad, but yeah, from the front definitely didn't look, uh, didn't look that bad, but, um, but yeah, they, I could see why they would want to show the front, uh, the front more. I, I was curious about the, um, I, the defense expert who you said, I can't, can't remember if it was a radiologist or an ortho orthoped. Um, but you know, so they, they're, were they trying to say that all of these injuries, like the two, the neck effusion that happened and then the fusion at L5, uh, S1 and L4, L5, all of that was just, was going to happen no matter what, even if this collision hadn't happened. Isn't that an argument that totally <laughs> defies logic? I, right. uh, <laughs> yeah, yes, that is exactly what they were trying to say is that right. all of this was degenerative and and this woman and you would also you saw the demonstratives where we had the treatment calendars and we showed the calendars of her life from before the crash and after the crash and what her days looked like before the crash which is i think she had like a dentist appointment in a physical one year and then after the crash like more than 50 percent of her days are filled with therapy doctor's appointments surgeries etc but that was the argument that her injury her injuries were all the only one that might have been related was the shoulder. And, and the radiologist didn't actually concede that. That was the defense. The, the defense attorney said that at trial. Okay. Um, but that it was all degenerative process, either degeneration based on age, weight, or the combination of the two. And I always find that humorous because that assumes that at some point, if if you take away the argument that she's lying and there was no argument that she was lying or faking or malingering, then you believe that her pain is is real and that she's experiencing pain. Then you have to then assume that your jury is going to believe that the pain onset was the same exact day of as the accident and would have happened regardless of whether she was smashed into by a 66,000 <laughs> pound cement. Yeah. But but that was that's what it was, essentially. Um, They said that any, of course, soft tissue strains or sprains that happened immediately after the crash would have gone away 
and that the need for surgery was not anything related to the accident. They didn't have a surgeon. So they didn't have an orthopedic surgeon to say that she didn't need surgery, though the radiologist was permitted to say she didn't think any of these injuries required surgery, which is something, of course, we tried to argue against, um, you know, someone who has never operated on someone in their entire life. Why is she able to give an opinion on surgery? But, But the judge let it in and it was fine because it sounded ridiculous. Right. I, I was thinking about that when you were talking about how she was pointing out all the adipose tissue and how much damage this does. It's like, well, what about the 66,000 pound truck going 50 miles an hour? I mean, right. what, does that do anything? You know? Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and this is one of the few cases where this woman had no uh, history that could be construed to contribute to this. I mean, that, and, and that doesn't happen very often, but she had nothing in her history as far as like an achy neck at some point, a headache, a backache, nothing. And so that was what we did with the radiologist. Like, how was she functioning the day before this truck crashed into her? I don't know. Like, how was she able to perform her job? Was she able to sit at her desk? Was she able to hang out with her friends and hang her Christmas lights? And I mean, of course, we were able to go down that road and this radiologist had nothing to say, but I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Um, but it really, I say it defies logic, but, but the argument is made all the time and and juries buy it all the time. So, you know, at some point it works, but here in, in the absence of any evidence at all that this woman had even a, a, an ache or a pain, before this crash, I just feel like it fell flat unless the jury was going to believe that she was a liar and, and assume that she was like harboring all this pain from before the crash, but never wanted to see a doctor. And then after the accident, all of a sudden decided to see every specialist in the world. And, you know, all of a sudden her pain was too much to over, you know, overcome. Yeah. It's like, uh, I mean, it was her lucky day. I mean, she got, yeah, she, yeah. she's like, yeah, I'm so glad this happened today. Now right. I can get all this stuff taken care Man, of. Man, I've been waiting to get that back surgery. <laughs> yeah. But I, right. you know, until that truck hit me, it just wasn't the right time. <laughs> right, right. Exactly. Um, how was Velma as like, uh, I think a lot of times with our clients, we can, um, you can certainly deal with it, but sometimes you have the issue where you've got somebody who's just, not good at communicating with their, their treaters or doesn't want to be a complainer or is not a good historian for themselves. Um, how we talked a little bit about how, what she presented like, or, or might present like to a jury, but how, what was your impression in terms of dealing with her treaters on, on, on that? Because I think that's a lot of times that's a, that's something you have to deal with in a case where, you know, somebody is really badly hurt, but, they don't like to talk about it or they don't trust doctors or um, all kinds of other stuff. She was really good at, and I think her partner helped a lot with um, the history to her orthopedic doctors. And luckily they were all in the same group. So they had really nice chart notes and were able to adopt each other's history. And that was great. She was not so great with the head injury and it, and that was part of the argument was that the onset was delayed, but really it was more just her coming to terms with the deficiencies that she was experiencing and not wanting to acknowledge. And then you've got, 
you know, with traumatic brain injuries, a lot of the times it's loved ones who are the ones who notice that their loved one is suffering and that they have experienced changes. But then there's always this dance because they don't want to point it out like, Mm -hmm. hey, you know, hey, honey, I noticed that you're forgetting your words or it seems like you're a little bit more irritable. And so they all, you know, you kind of dance around each other until someone finally says something. And that was the case here. So finally, Carrie said to her, I think you probably need to go and see someone about about the difficulties that you're having emotionally, especially at first. It was emotional um, and and some dizziness and nightmares and classic PTSD stuff, but also signs of of a mild TBI. And as you, as you mentioned earlier, Yvonne, like this was 2014 awareness around mild traumatic brain injury was still not really there. And, and we've gotten better in the last seven years. I mean, I think people realize now that concussion isn't just a concussion. And that's, that's what we had here is they kept trying to say, like, if anything, it was just a concussion and, you know, doctors agree that concussion and and mild traumatic brain injury are used interchangeably, but as a society, we still accept that a concussion is just a minor bump Mm -hmm. on the head. And so when we're trying to downplay what someone is experiencing as a result of, of an impact to the head, we often say, oh, it was just a concussion, even though that is clinically interchangeable with mild traumatic brain injury. But when we view someone on the outside as walking, talking normally, norm, I'm using quotations for normally because I hate the word normal. <laughs> we don't, you know, we are overlooking this, the great suffering that goes along with something that is classified as mild because mild does not mean mild effects on a person's life or independence or cognition. Yvonne, uh, you know that the practice of law since the pandemic has started has completely changed. Completely changed. A lot more pajamas involved for me. Yes, yes. A lot more working from the computer. Yes. And only getting dressed from the uh, from the waist up. But you know who has helped that change and that transition immensely in our practice and can help everybody else in theirs is legal technology services. That's right. I mean, being good at doing things virtually, at doing things through Zoom, through video conference online, it's more important now than ever. I'll say Zoom or WebEx or whatever you use now Legal Technology Services has completely changed how they do things in order to get you organized, looking good. Our depositions, our hearings, our mediations have all changed. And a big part of that is because we do them all virtually and we're doing them with the help of Legal Technology Services. So they get our exhibits in order, um, you know, and you call up the exhibits by number. They'll highlight them, they'll enlarge them, they'll do whatever they want. And it actually flows really well. I do have to say, I think my depositions are more organized now than they were before the pandemic because I used to just walk in with like a giant box of documents and then I'd pull out the documents and go through them and uh, now I'm much more organized because of legal technology services. Yeah and I mean LTS I'm gonna I'm gonna call them LTS because we're on a first name basis (laughs) you know my favorite thing about them is that we work with them a lot their staff is really highly trained and you can always count on them to represent you well whether they're doing your trial technology when we have 
have in-person trials one day, or if they're handling your depositions or they're doing settlement videos, other kinds of videos documenting stuff for you, you can always count on them to conduct themselves well. Clients like them, judges like them, courts like them, lawyers like them. Yeah, the one thing that I have to say is uh, when we're in trial, while I think we do pretty good in front of juries and hopefully they like us, they always like our trial techs, whether it's Bob, Taylor, Quentin, David, Liz, just any one of the people over there, they're all fantastic. And of course, Melanie, who runs the ship over there, but they do more than just exhibits. They do day in the life videos, they do settlement documentaries, they do demonstratives, and everything they do is just excellent. And you can look them up at ltsatlanta.com. And I can say that if you call them and tell them that you heard about them on the Great Trials podcast, then you get 10% off of your first service. So look them up at ltsatlanta.com. And I do want to say, even though they're based in Georgia, they do work nationwide. And they, I know they've done trials all over the country. Uh, but look them up at ltsatlanta.com. One of the things I saw in, your, uh, in, the, um, in what you sent us was that the defense, I think, tried to point out from some of her medical records where maybe she denied some of the symptoms of a head injury or that would go along with a with a traumatic brain injury or head injury. How did you and I, I think what I remember is she I think she denied dizziness, denied. Uh, I think she may have denied headaches at one point and then um, denied memory loss and stuff like that. How did you how did you handle that uh, at trial? So that was actually a really fun um, piece of this trial because she went to see a neurologist and I would put air quotes around neurologist for him too, where he put in his chart note, she denies a litany, everything that you just said, denies, 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 denies. And that was the document that they gave to their expert neurologist, the defense gave to their hired DME. But when you got the full chart note from the treating neurologist, it came with like the human drawing intake with like, you know, circle the symptoms that you're experiencing and, and draw where you're having difficulty. And she had circled dizziness, memory loss, difficulty sleeping, but he either just hadn't paid attention or was wrong. I don't, I don't know what happened because we didn't bother talking to him, and he was impeached by his own record. But then also the defense expert was impeached as well because he said, well, the only credible doctor in this whole bunch is this doctor here. And look, he says she was denying all of these things. And this was the closest in time to the accident. And she wasn't having any difficulty with memory. She wasn't having any dizziness. She wasn't having any difficulty concentration, concentrating. And then we handed him the intake she, which he did have, he had it. He just looked over it and concentrated on the chart note and said, you know, this shows that she was having literally all of those things that he put that she denied. And, um, that didn't go over too well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that, do, that does sound fun. Yeah. yeah that, exactly. was, that was one of my favorite parts of the trial because we of course knew it was in there the whole time. And we knew that the defense had gotten the records too from the copy service, but they just, they had let their, they let their expert go down that path and, and really like go all in with this one chart note and it really, really backfired. And then their expert kind of 
you know, he of course kind of backed off, even though he is a very, very seasoned expert and they were left a little high and dry from a neurology standpoint. Yeah. One, one of the things uh, I learned as a young lawyer and, and uh, it's a practice pointer for uh, young lawyers is that, um, you know, these, these medical records, uh, you know, a lot of times they come as part of a program and they, you know, doctors, because they are busy people and they they don't have time to constantly fill out paperwork will pre-fill out a lot of these. And so they won't always change it. So you'll see stuff in there that clearly doesn't go with the patient just because they haven't, uh, deleted that or taken that out. So always, I, I always make it a part, especially in medical malpractice cases, uh, you know, to get into questioning about what type of, uh, uh, of program they use for their computer records and whether or not any of it's already filled out, and, you know, and what, how, what they have to do to make sure that the records are accurate because it, it, you see it all the time. That's a great point. And even when you're looking at a, a record for the patient, it, it'll have like neurologic and it'll say like experiencing headaches, status post accident or whatever, but then you'll go down to orthopedic and they'll do a review of symptoms and they'll put denies headache on the very same record just because they're rushing through or they're not attributing the headache to orthopedic symptoms and defense tries to run with that. But if you know your records better than the defense, which you should, you know, you can have some fun with it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I feel like I learned the the same thing doing and, and I, you do have to do this a lot of times. Like if you're screening a potential case, you know, you spend a lot of time on the discharge summary and on the admission paperwork, but then just because of that, that pre-filled thing or that, or that rushing thing, you end up when you really go through it, it's a, you know, these hundreds of pages of progress notes and things like that, that you don't really want to go through. But a lot of times that's where the good stuff is because it's not been filled out. You know, it's somebody who's, who's just having to write it from scratch and um, just spending the time to go through that is hard. But a lot of times that's where your best stuff ends up being. Yeah. That's always the most tedious part of, of trial prep for me is going through every single page of records. But in what we sent you, we attached a couple pages from the medical chronology that we do in every case, which is a line by line document that has every single visit, every single PT. And so that forces us to look at every single one, because as you said, some of the best notes are like in your physical therapist or occupational therapist yeah. notes where they're mm -hmm. saying what the patient is experiencing that day. So to the extent that you're trying to avoid having your plaintiff whining on the stand you know, you can do it with your damages witnesses and getting what they're experiencing, but you can also get it from the medical records. But that chronology that we do forces us to comb through every single page of every single record. So then I also keep a shadow document of things that I view as negative. But then with my chronology, and sometimes it turns out to look impressive, like in this case, it was like 10 pages, single space. Sometimes it's not, but then I always have it to know the date that something happened. And I put just the date, the treatment facility or doctor, and then like one line about what happened when they were there. And then we are usually able to admit it as a 1006 voluminous records summary. And sometimes I have to take out the last column of what happened when they're there. And it's just the doctor and the date, but it gets the point across for just what your person's going through, because you can't outline every single record, every single treatment visit at trial but when you're trying to convey 
the sheer volume of visits and what their life has looked like when you're trying to contrast pre and post crash, I think it really makes for a good demonstrative or exhibit if you can get it admitted. Yeah. It's so huge. And I can't believe how many times like we'll finally make a good one of those like close to trial. And it's so useful. And you're like, man, I would have loved to have this a couple of years ago. (laughs) (laughs) Totally. Yes. I know. I, I, someday I'll do them as records come in or something. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Like a working document, but right now it's pre-trial. Whenever it happens. Yeah. Yeah. that, that reminds me of another demonstrative I saw that you use. I'm thinking it must have been in closing, but it was basically where you had taken every treatment that she had had, whether it was a surgery, and you put what the value of it was, you know, and what, and I think you might have even put a pain and suffering value to it. And then you put a future pain and suffering value in it. I mean, it was a, it was a long list, but it, it was a really good way of sort of, you know, pointing out everything that she had to go through because of this and then how the jury could put a value on each of those and then come up with their verdict uh, that they did. And uh, they must have followed it pretty closely because I think the numbers that you had at the bottom of it are fairly close to the number at the the ultimate verdict. You're right. This was the first case that we did that in, actually, because we were trying to, I mean, that's always the challenge is, is your ask at the end of trial. And juries always want a suggestion, but then they're sort of skeptical of your suggestion and, and what's the foundation for it. And, and here we didn't have anything, you know, we couldn't ask for medicals. We don't ask for punitives. We can't. Um, so we're left with non-economic and future wage loss. And so we just sat there and thought, what if this woman has been through so much? What if we just go through and, and we really got pretty granular with it, like with breaking down injections and, um, chronic pain syndrome and the symptoms of the traumatic brain injury and the headaches. And we really tried to be realistic. You know, it it was a big number, but as you said, they gave us exactly what we asked for. And so we did, we gave them past and future. And if something had resolved like the shoulder, we obviously didn't ask for future. So we tried to, you know, we explained it as we went along, just so they knew that this was a realistic figure and not just something we were pulling out of, of thin air, though, of course, of course you are, I mean, you can't, put a dollar sign on someone's life, but you have to at the end Mm -hmm. of the trial. And so did, so does your jury. And I think that that was the best way that we've come up with so far to do that, you know, and if they're with you, then, then you're going to arm your, your plaintiff jurors with something that they can hold on to and say, well, this is what they've suggested. And and if they're not with you, then they probably think you're nuts. <laughs> <laughs> well, even then, I mean, because, you know, assuming you've got a few jurors with you, even if the ones who aren't, it's it, it's going to be hard for them to go line by line and say, oh, this one doesn't count. This one doesn't count. This right. one, you know, I mean, it's just, you know, it's it's a it's a great document to put together. And I, I also was going to mention. So the, the so the verdict form. Uh, you know, basically the, the jury goes through and puts a, an amount per year 
um, you know, on like for lost wages, lost future wages. And then uh, the same thing for um, for pain and suffering or non-economic damages, but they don't add it up. So I was thinking, so when you get this verdict in, are you is somebody sitting there with a calculator going, going like, well, how, how much is all this? Because <laughs> because there's just all these lines that, uh, that you know, have like 300,000 on them. And then I was like, well, what what does all this add up to? <laughs> I, I sat there. And when they, when it started, when they started saying the same number over and over, I just started making tally marks. Right. And, and when they got done, Dave, Dave was like, do you have any idea what this was? And I'm like, I'm like, I think it was like, I think I said, I think it was like 12 million and it, you know, it was like 17.8 because I couldn't keep up, right. but you're right. Yeah. yeah. Verdict form did not give them a total. So that, yeah, uh, that was crazy looking. And it, it also, I had, I had a couple of questions about that as well. Cause it had, um, it had blanks for each year. And I was also wondering, okay, how many, how many blanks do you get? Do you get them from like the mortality tables or was that some sort of stipulation? Yep, exactly. The mortality tables okay. is where they come from. So unless there's evidence to deviate substantially from the mortality tables and life expectancy, yeah. then that's what we're going to go out to. And is that how it's always done? A blank like that year by year by year in Michigan? Yeah, for future pain and suffering, that's how that's how we do it. Wow. Because they they can stop whenever they want. Or I mean, I I guess conceivably they could skip years and decide that they're not going to start suffering again for five years out. Right. You know, they can do whatever they want yeah. that makes I okay. guess makes sense to them. But and and also they could they could go they could decrease it, you know, so they it wouldn't have to be the same number for each year. Right. They might start titrating down as they think that the suffering would decrease, I suppose. Uh, although our argument is that as you get older, it's only going to increase because you're in a compromised physical state. Right. And I could see, I mean, I, I think I like it. I think it would be really hard to sit there and have a verdict read to you that way. But I, um, but I do like the sense of, because what can, what, what can happen otherwise is, is that, you know, you have your number, your range, and you're trying to get the jury to think about it by day or by month or by year or whatever. But at some point it does just seem like if it's just one blank, that it all just kind of gets telescoped together versus if somebody's actually got to go with each blank and think about the dollar amount that's going on that for a whole year, for all these years that yeah. somebody's going to live with this pain, I changed my mind. I do like it, but I think it must be torture to have somebody read it that way and be like, where's this going? You're right. I mean, a a couple hundred thousand dollars may sound like a lot at first blush to someone, but when you spread that out over 40 years and it ends up being less than 10 grand a year, and you really, if you're really examining what someone's pain and suffering is worth, and if you agree that all of these injuries were from the crash, then, you know, six, $7,000 a year isn't enough to compensate her for that. And, and, you know, we had testimony that she was probably going to need the other hip done. And of course, as time goes on and and you've got fusions in your spine, you're probably going to need adjacent levels fused at some point. So she's probably looking at more spine surgeries down the road. And I, you know, I, that's how it's done here. So I don't have a choice to do it a different way, but I do like it in that you're forced to really think about what a year's worth of pain is worth rather than just 
you know, this is a lump sum. Yeah. It sounds like a lot. That's probably enough. Yeah. So we'll just give her this. Yeah. You know, I, 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 I like it because it forces them to think about, you know, each year and what each year is valued at. And so, uh, and I also have to think that in the, uh, you know, when you get a plaintiff's verdict and you're celebrating afterwards, it's probably kind of fun just to go through there and add all that up. You know, like, <laughs> and it's a good verdict. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> right. It's like $3 a year. <laughs> right. Yeah, really that's not so much fun. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, I did want to ask in terms of damages, as Steve mentioned, there was also, you know, something on there for lost wages. Um, and I was just hoping you could speak a little bit more about what you did. I think you had a vocational expert who basically just talked about what she could do or more specifically um, what she could not do and to sort of address this issue of, you know, what you're normally going to get is, you know, that somebody can't do any job, you know, like there's no job they can have, they can't work as a clerk. Um, so talk a little bit about that, how you, how you dealt with that issue of her not being able to really do any type of work. So we had some really good testimony from, um, her ex coworkers ex just because it was after the crash and she hadn't returned and they sort of turned into experts in her job, but also as non-economic, you know, non-economic laid witness damages experts, because they were able to kind of sit there and be like, well, this is what you've got to do. And you've got to think quickly to respond to the alarm. And oh yeah, Velma, she was always on top of it. And people are scared and she's on the phone with them and she's thinking fast and she's getting the correct people out there. But then the nice thing is, is that these are her friends who have stayed in touch with her after the crash. So they're able to say, you know, no offense to you, Velma, but as I sit and talk to you now, I know that you're not quick enough to deal with mm -hmm. these types of emergency situations. And so they, those witnesses for us were like dual purpose, which was awesome. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, we had our, our voc rehab expert who you know, they digest the medical records and say, based on what's in here, this is what she would be a fit for. And here we kind of had all angles covered because she couldn't do a sedentary job because she's got, you know, this tremendous amount of back and spine pain. She can't do a physical job that requires lifting or any sort of manual labor for the same reasons. She really can't do any job that requires critical thinking or any sort of quick decision making or any type of, of situation where she's put on the spot and has to analyze something. So it really was a situation where we couldn't, we really could combat any argument of, well, she could do something, right? Or, you know, she could work, stand at a cash register and check people out or, or do something like that because she really truly couldn't. Um, her economics were not a huge number. And at some point, I'm sure we discussed letting those go just because they were a, a lower anchor, but because her job was so important to her, the nice thing we had too, was these awards that she had been given at her job that went right into fit like puzzle pieces into the rest of our damages testimony, like how social she was, how she always liked to dress her best, how she always liked to plan parties. And so she had gotten these awards from her job, like um, dresses to impress or like, you know, something like <laughs> that, these cute little awards or 
the party planner of the office or there were pictures of her dressed up. And so I suppose we could have let the wage claim go and still presented that evidence, but we kept it in because it really was important to her. She, she was not a high earner, but she very much valued her job and, and gave it her all while she was there. And that came through with the awards that she got little awards. And um, we had two coworkers testify. And then on top of that, we had for damages, we had outside friends. Yeah, I thought some of the uh, the photos that you had were uh, really great. It just made her look like she was uh, very energetic, a lot of fun, and and uh, you know just sort of uh, uh, you know like to do all kinds of uh, of fun and interesting things. Um, one of the things I think I read about that you made a decision in this case where you you know a lot of times the plaintiff will be one of the last witnesses of the plaintiff's case. Um, sort of to you know, bring it all home. Uh, but I think you made the decision to uh, call her early in your case um, to sort of set the table. But talk, talk about your decision there and why you um, uh, called her early and, 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 how, um, and how that affected the case. I think that was a little bit of a gamble. Um, we, you know, we, as you said, I would say normally ascribe to the, the proposition that your plaintiff is going to go up last and bring it home. But there were a couple of reasons why we got her up early. One, we wanted to get her up before her damages witnesses because we wanted to present her in a more hopeful light because she was very hopeful and we didn't want her up there talking all about her pain. You know, we wanted her to talk about the things that she did before the crash Um we had her talk a little bit about how things had been after and in a very straightforward fashion, you know, this is what I've done. This is what I've, I, you know, I've had this surgery. I go to this therapy. I'm trying really hard to do this. I'd really like to be able to cook again, but we wanted the rest of the story, the damages essentially to come from people who were not her. So we put up early on um, the surgeon who had done the biggest surgeries, the neck and the back. Um, and I think we might've done one damages witness before her, but we wanted her partner to really be that last witness that brought it home. And she was, we also quite candidly, were not sure if she would be able to hold it together on the stand. Um, we weren't sure if it was going to be kind of just a mess. You know, she was very emotional, understandably super nervous about trials, super nervous about testifying, um, talking to the jury. All of it just gave her great, great anxiety. I mean, this, her life had been completely turned upside down. And this was basically her shot at, at redemption for her future. So she felt immense pressure. She was self-conscious of the way that she spoke with her a wavering voice and her tremor. And, and so we knew that we wanted to get it over with for her and also just let her partner be the one to carry the weight. Yeah. <coughs> Excuse me. No, I, I think that's a, a great way to do it. And we, you know, talk about it a lot of doing, uh, you know, good before and after witnesses, you know, friends, family members, people who can talk about, uh, you know, how the, uh, uh, the client has changed, um, you know, since this happened and really let it come through, you know, other people and not through, 
uh, you know, the plaintiff herself. Uh, yeah, we didn't have anyone that could talk about her childhood or about her as a, as a young adult. Um, and so that's where those photographs really came. I mean, they were crucial because it really just showed the full life that she had always lived and not just in the maybe 10 years before the crash that these people had known her um, because we didn't have, she wasn't close with her family. And so we didn't have anybody that we could call to fill in those gaps. And so a lot of her testimony was going through those photographs. You know, we just kind of flipped through them and she would kind of laugh or, you know, give a little anecdote about what we were looking at. And I think that the jury really liked it. I know they did because they told yeah. us after the fact that they really loved those photos and, and they loved her. I mean, they asked her if they could give her hugs after, after they gave the verdict and um, some of them were crying. Um, so they really, you know, she really spoke to them and connected with them more than we could ever gauge as trial was going on. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, did the defense try to do much of a cross on her and was there, I mean, it sounds like it wasn't effective, but uh, what did they try to do? He pretty much did went with the typical defense playbook. He um, crossed her on, he showed the records, crossed her on the delay in the onset for the, the injuries that he thought were delayed. Um, and then spent a lot of time on improvements. You know, after your neck surgery, you went back to the doctor and your pain was down to a, a two out of 10. That's great. You know, and, um, so really mostly just trying to make it seem as though, and that was his argument in closing too, that even if the accident caused all this stuff, she's fine now. So all of the damages are in the past and we know that the head injury isn't related. So that's worth nothing too. Um, I think he suggested maybe like a hundred thousand or something like 120,000. I don't know. I don't yeah. remember, but it, it was, it was like that, like any damage that has happened, she's gotten the treatment that she's need. It's been great. Her pain is, her pain is low and the head injury isn't related. So we, we good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, sorry, I wanted to ask you something, just going back for a second about damages witnesses and, and you had, you ended up having some who were kind of filling dual roles, like the, the former coworkers, but something we talk a lot about on the show. And I think we talk a lot about when we're getting ready to try a case is, um, how many is, is the right amount? How many, you know, is enough without being too much, without annoying the judge, without annoying the jury. And I was just wondering if you had any helpful thoughts about both um, who you pick and then how you decide when you feel like you've got the right amount of testimony. When we talk to our clients about who we want for damages witnesses, everyone comes out the gate with like 15 family members. And so we always try and tell them like, okay, great. Um, we're going to narrow this down, but I also need non-family members. I would prefer some people that have known you in your professional life. Even if you, even if you don't keep in touch now, since you haven't been back to work after the crash, we want them to paint the picture of what you were like as a, as a coworker, et cetera. 
we, of course, we've all been in trial when the judge is getting irritated with your damages, witness it and, you know, move it along, move it mm-hmm. along. Okay. Mm-hmm. You know, okay. Okay. You know, how many of these are we really going to have? Are we yep. really going to have 10 people in here? And that's so, it's so hard, right? Because that's, that's where your money is going to come yeah. from in the absence of having your, your clients sit up there the whole time or, or their spouse, which sometimes works and sometimes doesn't because of course the argument always is that your family members are going to be seen as more biased. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I don't think there's a good way to do it except for that. We try and, and not like layer them on top of each other. So we try right. and sprinkle them through the trial. So it doesn't seem redundant. And then we try to not have them repeat each other, even though even though it does, you know, you want to drive home the point that one is making by having another one make a similar point so that you can say like, well, this is unrebutted. He is the greatest person in the world. But how we try and get around that is always having our lay witnesses be prepared with anecdotes or and stories. So we yeah. always try and have them have an example that that's going to tie in the senses and be able to be imprinted in the jury's memory when they go back and try and remember what that person said. Or when we show the picture, you know, like, hey, this was the person who said that she always put up Christmas lights with Velma or she got home and would always see Velma on her hands and knees weeding her garden. Um, And now she walks into the house and Velma's pretty much laying on the couch all the time. And so I think when you do it that way, it gets less annoying. I don't know that I can give an, a, a number because yeah, there's been cases where I've felt like three witness, three damages witnesses were too many because they just like were not great witnesses and kind right. of just droned on and said the same thing as the previous witnesses. And then I'm standing up there like, I really want to get these people off the stand. You right. know, I'm feeling like, <laughs> like the judge, but here... I think there were, I think we had, we had five. So not, not a lot, but we, we just, you know, we'd have a a doctor video and then we'd bring one of them in and then we'd do something else and, and throw one of them up. And we tried to sequence it in a way that went along with the testimony that they might be hearing, you know, to the extent we could, like if they're, you know, if they just heard the neuropsychologist talking about, um, the social issues and emotional issues and, and maybe like your cognitive issues or processing speed or whatever. And then you bring in the coworker that drives home what is required for the job. And you need all of the things that the neuropsychologist just said you don't have. That's a great way to like, kind of like linchpin your previous witnesses. Yeah. Yeah. I like that too, because it's not like, it's not like juries necessarily think about the witnesses the way we do, you know, you're sort of like, um, you know, your liability people or your medical people and your treaters and your, your damages only. And, um, so I like that because then it, it feels even more that a witness is speaking to more than one aspect of the case. Um, but I, I always, I'm hit, sorry. No, I was just going to say you hit the nail on the head. I, I always struggle with when, you know, the judge doesn't want you to have a lot, um, and what they consider a lot is usually not very many. <laughs> right. yeah. yeah, because they don't care that these are the people that are going to drive your damages. And 
you know, of course we are, have all been in the trials where it's basically like, all right, we're waiting for a witness to get here. We need to throw up too late when yeah. in a row. Right. And sometimes you don't have control over it, but in the event you can, if, if you can tell your story by spreading them out and sequencing witnesses that complement each other, I think that's going to be to your advantage. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a great way to do it. Um, I, I did want to talk uh, briefly about voir dire. I saw in you in some of your uh, the presentation that you, you talk about, you know, how you, you know, basically would get the jury talking about the idea of paying money for injuries and whether or not anybody had a problem with that. Talk a little bit about your, your strategy there. So I will say that in this case, we had to submit our voir dire ahead of time and what I submitted to you guys is exactly what we submitted to the judge. Um, he did allow some attorney conducted for deer, but on a somewhat limited basis. And so what we wanted to focus on, we always want to focus on money for pain, you know, and what problems that someone might have, no matter how small those problems are awarding money to compensate for someone's pain. And then exploring the concepts of, if you find out that that money isn't going to do anything to, to help that person's pain, do you have any problems awarding money for pain? Because this is our civil justice system and money can't fix everything. You know, you always have those jurors mm-hmm. like, well, money can't fix it. So I don't see why I would award a whole bunch of money to this person when I know that, that it's not going to do any good. And so you, we always want to explore money for pain, upper limits you know, trying to weed out your jurors that have upper limits on what they would award, even if the damages were to support it. So then you're also introducing large numbers early on in the case because you're throwing out huge figures and and wanting them to think about whether or not they are capable of awarding those numbers if the proofs were to support it. Um, so even though we were limited in in our time and and he he did kind of rein us in with you know he didn't really want us talking about the facts you know want us arguing the case we were able to get money for pain i think we may have lost a couple for cause um on the money for pain and upper limits which was always good yeah 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 so and then after the trial did you have a chance to talk to the jury we did. They they hung around. Um, the judge did not like keep them in the back and ask them if they wanted to meet with us, but they came out in the hallway while we were still there. And pretty much all of them wanted to talk to Velma. They, you know, they all wanted to, I think, congratulate her. And, you know, I really think that they were very, they're more invested than I had a gauge on through the whole trial. They were pretty stone-faced the whole time you know you try and gauge some level of connection but can't always and and I didn't with with this jury and then as soon as they gave her the verdict they were crying and then they're in the hallway and they're hugging her and they just wanted to wish her well um feedback that they gave us they they hated the defense experts um absolutely hated hated them they were really offended by the, some of the same things that offended our mock jury, the argument that her issues were because she was overweight, 
um, that she's all better now that she, you know, they felt like defense was suggesting that she didn't deserve much money at all, which of course they were suggesting that. Um, and they found that quite offensive as well. Yeah. Well, um, I mean, this has just been a great discussion and we really appreciate your time. I want to remind everybody that we've been talking about the uh, Dorado versus McCoy concrete company and Leonard Wells case, excuse me, uh, that resulted in a $17.8 million verdict in Wayne County, Michigan uh, in June of 2014. Um, Sarah, is there anything else that uh, you want to make sure our listeners know about this trial that we haven't had a chance to talk about? Not that I can think of right now. Thank you. Well, well, thank you. This has been really good. <clears throat> Sorry. Now at the end of the podcast, I decided to start losing my voice. Yeah, just, but, uh, just in time, Sarah. It's good you didn't have anything else to say. I had right. the same thing happening. Um, but uh, let me remind everybody that we've been talking to uh, Sarah Stimke Kine, uh, managing attorney at Christensen Law. You can look her up at davidchristensenlaw.com. That's C H R I S T E N S E N, davidchristensenlaw.com. Sarah, thank Thank you so much for your time. Thank you guys so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? Thank you for listening to the Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com. We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology, and Yvonne, that's going to be hopefully not that boring. Uh, We've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our greattrialspodcast.com, as well as a uh, glossary of the legal terminology on the uh, website. Yeah, so check those out. If you have a trial you would like to be featured on the Great Trials Podcast, or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show, or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us, please email us at info at greattrialspodcast.com. Note if you have something mean to say, we don't have email. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> we only need a positive commentary. Yeah, we're fragile. Yeah. Um, you can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say, um, our podcast is not available for review. We, we also want to thank uh, the people behind the scenes. Uh, one is Taras Misher, who is our uh, uh, podcast extraordinaire. Uh, he is from Podcast on the Go. And Allison Hirsch uh, from Capricorn Communications. She is a magician when it comes to putting these shows together and getting them scheduled. And this has been the Great Trials Podcast, and we appreciate your time and hope you'll listen again. Thank you for listening.